Uh, but it is great to be with you this morning. We are going to be continuing in our teaching series in the book of James called what? Born Again Behavior. Last Sunday we talked about faith that works, faith that produces works, belief in Jesus Christ, and that belief producing good works, things that kind of pour out of that faith. We talked about that and we wrapped up chapter 2. In chapter 3 of James, James further expounds some of the subjects that he's already mentioned back in chapter 1. Examples, in chapter 1, verses 19 and verse 26, he mentioned speaking and the use of the tongue. And now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, he reintroduces this subject of speaking and the tongue and what does he do? He takes us deeper into that subject. Another example, back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, James mentioned the need for wisdom. The fact that the people of God need wisdom when they're going through trials. Right? That was a big theme back in chapter 1. Now in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, that's the latter section of this, uh, latter section of this chapter. What does he do? He reintroduces the subject of wisdom, and he takes us deeper into it. But before he reintroduces these subjects and begins to expound on them in, in greater detail, what he does here is he issues a strong, strong warning to those who aspire to become teachers of the Word of God and to those who are already teachers of the Word of God. I find it very interesting that, that he begins to talk about teachers using their tongues before he gets into the entire subject of the tongue. It's like he wants to first focus on those who teach the word in regards to the use of their tongue in speech. And then he kind of broadens it and blows it out where it has more of a broader application. In ancient Jewish culture, the rabbis were the most respected and honored men among the people. And their profession, literally you could call being a rabbi a profession. It was a type of job like being a law enforcement officer, a cop, a police officer, or being a pastor, or being a chef. It was a kind of profession. And it was one of, if not the highest sought after professions in the ancient world especially among young men. And the word rabbi literally translates out of Hebrew as great one. So in ancient Jewish culture, a rabbi is a great one. And the primary responsibility of the ancient rabbi was to essentially teach the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. And rabbis basically gained their notoriety, they gained their fame through the teaching of Scripture. In other words, as, as teachers of Scripture, that's what kind of exalted them to this sort of ancient rock star status. Does that sound familiar? Is that not happening today? And I'm not talking about rabbis now, I'm talking about quote-unquote, pastors in churches. There's a parallel with what was happening in the first century and with today. Now, the rabbis back then who were really, really good at teaching the Word of God, they, they received double and triple honor. And they were viewed like, maybe like A-list actors. An A-list actor is an actor that's really, really sought after above most other actors. And these ancient rabbis who were really, really good at teaching the word, they were, they were viewed as A-list actors, and they were paid exorbitantly massive amounts of money to go around to the different synagogues and teach God's word. And they lived rich, luxurious lifestyles that would have caught the attention of Robin Leach. Remember him? Lifestyles of the rich and famous. You remember when they profiled me and my family? Neither do I. 
Sadly, this ungodly ancient practice of exalting rabbis and those who went around teaching the word, sadly, this ungodly practice, it, it entered into Christian churches. And this was primarily because there were Jews who were being saved by the gospel and they were being added to these churches and they brought this practice with them. They didn't leave it at the door, so to speak. They kind of brought it in with them. And the congregation James wrote to had both Jewish and Gentile Christians striving and striving and striving to become teachers of the word. And a great many of them were doing it for the wrong reasons. Fame, notoriety, wealth, prominence, higher social status, all the various reasons why this was happening. And this is precisely why James issued a strong warning to those who aspire to become teachers and to those who already teach at the beginning of chapter 3. So that's the context for you. In fact, the entire section on the tongue here in chapter 3, it is all set within the context of teaching. But make no mistake, because right now you're thinking, well, I don't teach the Word, so I don't have to worry about it. It doesn't apply to me. No, make no mistake. The principal truths in this passage, they apply to every believer. Every believer, not just those who teach. Especially once we get past verse 5. That's where it becomes more broad and applicable. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 3. We will be focusing this morning on verses 1 through 5a. Once more, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 5a. I have entitled this message, A Warning to Teachers. Let's pray before we get to work. Father, we once again humble ourselves and acknowledge your great and glorious holy presence. We submit ourselves to you. We yield ourselves to you when we ask, Father, that you teach us and train us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Teach us about Christ. Teach us about our tongues. Teach us about uh, being teachers of the word, teach us everything that you want us to know through this text. And be glorified as it happens, as you proclaim your word to us, as you teach us through me. Humble us, Father, and teach us today. Be glorified, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can go ahead and pick up where we left off last Sunday, and that would be chapter 3, verse 1. You guys ready? Hope you're ready to take some notes and stuff. You should have a reference sheet with you. There's a little less cross-references today, uh, but you should have it there. Let's pick it up at verse 1. This is what James says next. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Mm. So, Let's just back up a little bit. After calling this congregation out on its various sins and even questioning the legitimacy of this congregation's faith, right? Because they really, in many ways, weren't acting like people who had true saving faith. Many of them weren't. After calling this congregation out and questioning their faith in chapters 1 and 2, James, he now warns it to reconsider its pursuit of vocational ministry or the teaching of God's Word. Basically, what he's doing here is he's trying to slow them down because there's a great many people, great many men in this congregation who want to be teachers, want to be Christian rabbis if there was such a thing. They want to be pastors and they want to preach the Word. And what he's doing now, after calling them out, he's backing them up. He's saying, hey, oh, hold on a second here. And I'm kind of surprised that James said not many of you should become teachers rather than none of you should become teachers. I mean, after spending how many weeks expositing chapter 1 and 2, 
and looking at the behavioral pattern and sinful pattern of many in this church, it's kind of a mystery to me as to how any of them could be considering to do this. But he says not many, he doesn't say none. The absence of a full prohibition here indicates that there very likely were a few called men in this congregation. Men whose faith had works. Men of good character. Men of of godliness and men of integrity. Men who were not stumbling and falling into the plethora of sins that plagued this church. Men who were even gifted to teach. And men who had the right motive Break down the verse a little bit. The Greek word for teacher is didaskalos, didaskalos, and it was used in reference to the primary teachers of that day, rabbis. So when you see the word teacher, think rabbi in a sense. James is basically saying not many of you should become didaskalos, men who teach like the rabbis. Last Sunday, I I told you that that James broke a cardinal rule among many of the the postmodern types that we have today when he questioned the legitimacy of this audiences or this church that he wrote to, when he questioned the legitimacy of their faith. You know, postmodern types, they get all fired up when you question someone's faith. Because why? They believe that faith is personal and it's subjective and it's off limits. Well... To these people, James committed a similar infraction here when he questioned this audience's alleged calling to become teachers. It's equally taboo to do that. It's not a popular thing to do today. You don't question someone's faith, and you certainly do not question a person's calling, right? Because most people think and believe that a person's calling is between them and God. No. A person's calling is not between them and God only. It is actually between that person, God, and his church. Spurgeon rightly described a person's calling as both inward and outward. It begins inwardly as the person senses God's call to the ministry. When that guy goes and he shares what he senses, this calling to ministry, and he even shares his desire because there's going to be a strong desire to teach the word, a strong desire for that kind of ministry. When he goes and and shares the desire and what he senses from the Lord with leaders in the church, what will they do? Immediately put him in a pastorate where he can teach? No, but they will watch and they will listen and they will train when they become more and more convinced that the man has that particular calling on his life, when he has the right character, when he has the right qualifications, when he has the very gifts that a teacher must have. And if this guy who senses this this calling and he he shares this information, um, if he begins to display before leaders, maybe the pillars, right? We talked about that. When he displays these qualities and characteristics and desire before others for a period of time, what will they do? They will call him to the ministry with the church's support. And they will either place him within that body to teach, or they will send him out. And sending him out means they didn't have a position for him, so he left and went to another church. We always call that, hey, we're being intentionally missional. We sent Bill over to that other church. We just didn't have enough money to pay Bill. But in either way, they will affirm and they will appoint or they will say, you have our blessing. We will give you a great reference as that person leaves. And yet, if this guy does not display the right qualities and character and integrity and gifts and all of that, guess what the leaders are to do? Not to appoint them. They're not to be mean or cruel about it, but they are to say, we don't think that God has placed that calling on your life. And, and here's why from the Bible, not this is what Phil thinks. And that's a hard thing to hear if you're on the receiving end of that. I was actually told that years ago. That Actually, I wasn't told that. I was told I would never pastor at a particular church. And within several months, I was a pastor at that church. 
That's a hard thing to hear, man. Have somebody look you in the eye and say, look, I, I've been watching. I don't think so. That's a tough thing. And years ago, I had, a, had an intern at my, my previous pastorate in church. I had an intern who he just kept claiming and claiming and claiming over and over and over and over to be called to the ministry. And so what did I do? I did what any pastor should do, and that's, you know, watch and listen and work with that person and try to nurture those things and build those qualities and things like that. I tried to do that, but after about a year of, of toiling with him, I, I just wasn't convinced of it. Now, I didn't tell him. I didn't think that God had put, placed that calling on his life, but I told him that I didn't sense that that was what he was called to do because his commitment level was just way off. You know, he, he couldn't even get to stuff on time and do the basic things that every employee has to do. You know, many of us have to punch a time clock. You have to be at work on time and punch a time clock or sign into a computer or whatever. But it's pretty normative for those who work to get to work on time. And with this guy, he would show up always to everything late. And I, you know, and, and I was the one, he was supposed to help me set stuff up. So, of course, I wasn't happy about that. But he did that all the time. And, you know, I just remember sitting down with him and saying, look, I, I'm not sure exactly if that's the direction you ought to go in because you, I love you, but you, you can't even get these basic things down. And if you're going to be a man who teaches God's word and you want to be a pastor and all that, you've got to master the basics, you know? you really got to master those things before you start talking about getting into this other stuff. And you know, I counseled him, and what did he do? He got all blown out. How dare you question my calling and blah, blah, blah. And he actually left the ministry that he was serving in with me, and he left that church all because of that. And I was like, okay, figure out a new way to counsel next time because that's not what I wanted. And what did he do? He left my ministry or the ministry that I was overseeing in that church, and he started serving in other ministries around town at other churches. And after a while, he eventually became a director of a youth ministry. And this lasted uh, maybe two years at best. And today, he's a salesman. <laughs> the question is, was that intern, was my intern actually called by God to the ministry? I, I don't know for sure. I, I, can't, I can't really determine that. All I can do is watch and listen and all that. I can't really determine it. But what I do know for sure is that the church has a role in making that determination. It's not just between him and God. A person's calling is between them and God and the church. After being assessed and given the right hand of fellowship, the Jerusalem church called Paul and Barnabas to go and teach and preach the gospel to Gentiles. Acts 13, Galatians 2.9, the, the pillars of that church were involved in the process of determining and appointing and sending them out to live out that calling. That's a great example there of how this works. So since the church is involved in making these particular determinations, it is not wrong for the church to question a person's calling when the biblical requirements for that calling are absent. And I'll tell you, when God truly calls a man, he equips the man, and the church will affirm the man, and the church will help that man get from point A to point B. That's the way that it works biblically. So what I'm telling you here, and it was a, a lot of story just to make this point, James broke no rule here. He broke no rule by questioning the legitimacy of the calling that these men were claiming to have. He was actually doing his duty. This congregation failed to remain steadfast under trials. It failed to seek God for wisdom. It failed to maintain a steady trust in God. It failed to take responsibility for its temptations. It failed to pursue purity. It failed to obey Scripture. It failed to control its tongue. It failed to be impartial. It failed to obey the royal law by loving its neighbors. And the legitimacy of its faith was questioned by an apostle. 
Only a lunatic would have immediately jumped on board and supported the idea of its members becoming teachers of God's word. Only a, a, a brainless maniac would have said, okay, let's get you ready for the ministry. No, a wise and discerning biblical pastor would have said, I don't know at this point. Let's hit the brakes. Let's pump the brakes a little bit. The word many, right? You see the word many in verse 1. The word many reveals that there was no shortage of men in this church desiring the position of teacher. But the word not reveals that the majority of them were neither called nor qualified for such a position. In the second half of verse 1, James tries to literally slow these brothers down by getting them to consider the divine scrutiny every teacher of God's word is subjected to. This is the verse that keeps me up some nights. Teachers of God's word are held to a higher standard than non-teachers of God's word in the church. And because of this, they will be judged with greater strictness. Why are teachers of God's word held to a higher standard than those who do not teach it? Why are they judged with greater strictness? Well, I can provide you with a couple of reasons. I think this is a subject we could talk about for a long time, but... I'll just hit on a couple of points here. First, and this is very obvious, teachers of God's word speak on God's behalf. They put an audible voice to God's word. Everything they say regarding the word while they are teaching will be, in a sense, representative are representative of God, even when they say things that do not represent him at all. People hear what is being said from God's word, and what do they do? They connect it to God. And quite frankly, people are always attempting to impugn the holy character of God. Teachers of his word must avoid giving them fodder through inappropriate speech, through outlandish interpretations, and through inaccurate expositions. And yet, when a teacher of God's word handles the word rightly, what happens? God is rightly heard, and God is glorified, even though it ticks people off when the word of God is preached rightly. Because the gospel is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. Amen? But it doesn't matter what's happening with the person. When God's word is preached rightly and divided rightly and expounded rightly, God is heard rightly and glorified by those who know and understand his word. And yet when a teacher handles the word of God wrongly, God is not rightly heard, nor is he glorified. God, therefore, takes a teacher's words very, very seriously. So much so that he holds them to a higher standard and judges them more strictly. Teachers must be careful when they teach. And they also must be very, very careful with their conduct with the way that they live their life before the people they're teaching. People are listening and people are watching. But more importantly, God is listening and God is watching. So firstly, why are they held to a higher standard and judged more, with more scrutiny? They are a mouthpiece for God in a sense. They are speaking on God's behalf. And, and when they say only the word of God, they're hitting the nail on the head. But when they begin to expound on it and add commentary and all that, that's where it can get pretty shifty. But in any case, when I stand up here in this pulpit, I am representing God's word and speaking on his behalf. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to run out that locked door right through the glass sometimes. That is a scary thought. God is, holds me to a higher 
level and stricter scrutiny. Second, teachers are in a position of authority. What they say and do will influence others. If they stick to the word and live godly lives as best they can, they will influence people positively. But if they stray from the word and go down these unbiblical, untheological, undoctrinal rabbit holes, and if they back that up with ungodly lives and loose living, what are they going to do? They're going to influence people negatively. They have this position of authority and position of influence. And you know what? Here's a, just a simple proverbial fact. People become like those who teach them. People become like those who teach them. They take on the form and theology of their teachers. People today are always saying, well, I just strictly go by the Bible. I'm a biblicist. And I always respond, well, well, do you listen to anyone who preaches the word? Well, of course. I'm a member over at this church, and I like Bill's sermons, and I listen to Matt Chandler on the radio, and I do this, and I do that. And I say, so, so you're not strictly a biblicist then? Well, of course I am. No, you're not, because you're getting your theology from those whom you listen to. There's only been one person who's perfectly a biblicist, and his name is Jesus, and he is the Word. Everyone else, the minute you listen to a sermon, you're being impacted by the information in that sermon, whether it be positive or negative. We do not have our, our own theology, our theologies. They are developed and adopted through the listening of the teaching and preaching of the Word. And that's why I always tell people, pick the right theological stream to swim in because there's a whole lot of them out there and most of them aren't worth anything. They're just flowing sewage. When Hosea just nailed this. In Hosea 4.9, he said, what the priests do, the people will also do. Many of us today, we... We scratch our heads just wondering and wondering and just baffled. We're in constant bewilderment why this generation of young people is so weak-minded, so unpatriotic, so determined to, to thrust this nation into socialism. How did they become this way? Teachers! That's the power of a teacher. Teachers in the home. Teachers in the media. Teachers in our colleges and universities. We're scratching our heads wondering, how did this generation become like this? They were taught by somebody to become like that. They were taught by weak minded people and they have therefore become weak-minded people they were taught by unpatriotic people who think this country is just utterly and absolutely wicked and evil and there are many 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 wicked and evil things about this country but they've been taught to hate this country and they've been taught that there's another form of government governance and way of life that's just superior and that's why they do what they do it's all through teaching many of us also scratch our heads wondering why this generation of Christians is so utterly ignorant of God's word, is theologically vacuous, empty, is addicted, absolutely addicted to spiritual experiences. We scratch our heads, we're saying, what is going on with this generation of Christians? This has to be the worst generation of Christians since Christianity was born on the day of Pentecost. Why? Why are they like this? Teachers! Teachers in the home. Teachers in Christian media. Teachers in Christian colleges and universities. And teachers in churches. In pulpits. Teachers 
of God's word are in a position of massive authority as they wield the word of God. Massive influence over others. And because of this, they are held to a higher standard and will be judged more strictly. Think about this. If every careless word will be brought into judgment, Matthew 12, 36, then how much more will the statements of teachers be judged at the Bema seat of Christ? 2 Corinthians 5, 10, since they so deeply influence our knowledge of God and development of Christian character. Now, to avoid discouraging everyone that James is writing to here, in order to avoid discouraging all of them from pursuing a teaching position in the church, because that's, it's like, I, if I'm on the receiving end of this, like, I'm still going to just keep working at 7-Eleven. Forget about teaching. To avoid discouraging everyone, because you know what? We need teachers, and God has called teachers, and the church needs to identify and train and appoint them. To avoid just discouraging everyone from such a lofty position or high position in the church, James reminds his readers of several important truths in the next line. We can look at verse 2 now. He says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James reminds his audience and, and that, all, and, uh, that all believers, he's reminding his audience that them and, and all believers, we all stumble in many, many ways, right? We do. We all stumble with sin. He, He's not, you know, he's not promoting some pie-in-the-sky idea of perfection here. James was a realist, but he's saying, look, look, we all stumble in many ways. But then he says that the man who does not stumble in speech and what he says is perfect and also able to control his whole body. All right, first of all, this man that, that James has brought before us does not exist. He does, but he's enthroned at the right hand of God. There's only been one who's ever pulled this off. There's only one who spoke perfectly without any sin or deceit. And that's Jesus Christ. No person since Adam has been able to avoid stumbling in speech with the exception of Jesus he alone committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 22. And some of the, the greatest men in the Bible stumbled in speech. Moses was one of God's truly great men. He, he was called the humblest man on the face of the earth in Numbers 12, 3. Yet it is written of him, he spoke rashly with his lips. Psalm 106, verse 33, rashly. Job, obviously a tremendously great man of God, whom God himself called blameless and upright, Job 1, 8. But Job had trouble controlling his tongue, as revealed in the final chapter of his book. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Job chapter 40, verse 4. Another exponentially, tremendously great man in the Bible. Isaiah, hands down, the greatest prophet next to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet with a capital P. But Isaiah was a great man. But hear his confession Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah 6, 5. I mean, these are, in, in many regards, men that I look up to in the Scripture. Men that I aspire to be like. But even the greatest men of renown, the greatest men that we read about in the Bible, had problems with their tongues and speech. As I said, James was not promoting some pie-in-the-sky notion of perfection here. Nothing like that at all. The Greek word 
for perfect is one of my favorite Greek words. It is teleos or teleos. And it can be transliterated as mature. You see the word perfect there, right, in the ESV translation. Think of it as mature. Mature. Now, now Jesus uses this word in one of the Gospels. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's not talking about maturity there. He's talking about perfection because God is not just mature. He is literally perfect. But here, James is using teleos or teleos in the other sense. He is talking about maturity here. I mean, literally, James had just told all believers that we all stumble in many ways. He could not have been referring to actual perfection in speech or anything else. So I'm not exactly sure why translators decided to translate teleos as perfect rather than mature. I think mature is a much better word and fit here, the English word. What James is basically saying here is that you don't have to be perfect in speech to be a teacher of God's word because perfection in speech is not attainable in this life. But you do have to be mature. You do have to be mindful of what you say. You do have to be careful with what you say. That's what he's saying. If you're going to be a teacher of God's word, you need to be mature enough to keep your tongue in check and in cheek. In other words, maturity in speech is requisite to being a teacher of God's word. If a person is reckless in speech, they should not be put in the high position of teaching God's word. Doing so will only incur God's judgment on them and upon those who placed him in that position. But if a person exhibits maturity in speech, he has met a basic requirement for becoming a teacher of God's Word. Now, there are many other requirements, but that's one of them. Paul said the same thing, but just a little differently in 1 Tim chapter 3, where he laid out the requirements for overseers. And what will elders and overseers do? They will, part of what they do is they will teach God's Word. In verse 2, he calls it self-controlled. What does a self-controlled person do? He watches his mouth. He watches and guards his tongue. I love how James basically said that the man who is able to control his speech is also able to control his entire body. What he's illustrating for us here is just how powerful the tongue is. It's simple logic. If a guy can control his tongue, he can keep the rest of himself in check. That's how tough this thing, that's how tough it is to keep the tongue in check. Amen? Can I get an amen? Somebody give me an amen. I don't want to get too excited because I'll say something stupid and I'll have to leave. It is, it is hard. Is it not hard? Oh, my goodness. But the person who can master the tongue can master everything else. That's what he's saying. He's using this kind of logic here. In other words, if we can control the tongue, there is nothing about us we cannot control. And I say, good luck. (laughs) In the remaining verses, James further illustrates the power of the tongue. We can move to verses 3 through 5a now, the rest of the text. He says this, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we, we guide their whole bodies as well. And then he says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder whenever the, uh, wherever the will of the pilot directs. And then he says this, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Mm. James gives two basic illustrations here, one about horses and the other about ships. Now, the horse is an awesomely powerful animal. It really is. In fact, my name, Philip, translates into like Navajo as lover of horses. It really does, and I have no idea why I said that, because I really don't like horses. Um, but it really does. I have a friend, Spencer Cooper. Remember him? He's part of, he was part of our church for years. He still calls me lover of horses. I call him other things that disqualify me from the ministry here, but... But the horse is, is a, a tremendously powerful animal. You can, put, you can put 
550 pounds on a horse's back, and it won't even snort. It won't flinch. It'll stand there and bear the weight as if the weight isn't there. It's pretty incredible. And the same horse, if you take the weight off, an unburdened horse can what? Sprint a quarter mile in about 25 seconds. That's fast. That's real fast. A horse is a thousand pounds of raw power. And yet, if you place a bridle and bit in its mouth and a hundred pound woman on its back who knows what she's doing, she can make that animal dance all because of a bit. She can direct all that power with something as simple as a bit, something as small as a bit in its mouth. That, by the way, goes over the tongue, not under. The largest passenger ships in the ancient world carried about 300 people. They're nothing like today's cruise ships. How many of you have been on a cruise? Okay, a few. Three? Four? Well, I figured there'd been more people in here. By the way, next time you go, let me know. You'll need to pay for it. But 300 people, max capacity of the ancient ships. Now, that's a pretty big ship built out of wood back in the old days. When Paul was sent to Rome, he, he sailed on a ship that had 276 passengers on it. It was also almost at maximum capacity. It was a really, really big ship for that day. And, of course, the ship he was on struck a reef and sank at Malta. Paul, the crew, and, 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 and everyone else that was on it just barely escaped with their lives. Acts 27, the whole narrative's there. That ship and all ships, regardless of their size, are guided by a small rudder which is controlled by the pilot. It's amazing to think that something that large and massive with that many people on it is guided by just this little flipper in the back. Horses are guided by a small bit, and ships are guided by a small rudder. And guess what? The tongue is very, very small in comparison to the rest of the human body. It weighs about two ounces. Some of us refer to it as the two-ounce dragon because it can breathe fire. And like a bit in a horse's mouth or a small rudder on a ship, the tongue has the power to guide people in different directions, right? A teacher uses his tongue to direct people. Adolf Hitler wasn't a teacher of God's word by any means, nor was he a Christian, so I'll just extinguish that myth. He was a Christian. Look at all the people he killed. No. Adolf Hitler used his tongue to guide millions of Germans into war and genocide. That is the use, the evil use of a tongue. He spewed propaganda and, and, and um, impure, um, wrong kind of nationalism, and he stoked the flames of racism, these things. He used his tongue to literally guide masses of people into war and into genocide. Did he not? And yet, right on the other side of the channel, Winston Churchill used his tongue to rally and pull together a faltering nation for its finest hour. The tongue has immense power. It can guide people toward Jesus and godliness, or it can guide people away from Jesus, away from godliness and toward evil and wickedness. In verse 5a, James tells us that the tongue might be small, but it boasts of great things. What great things might James have had in mind here when he's talking about this? What was he talking about? How the tongue... Now, remember, we're in a teaching context. We're talking about those who, who teach the word. How might someone, a guy who's teaching God's word, how might he boast? Well, the teacher might boast about himself. There are so-called teachers in our community 
who are always boasting about themselves. Boasting about their college football days. Boasting about all of their accomplishments for the kingdom of God and the church and the advancement of the gospel and just boasting and boasting and boasting and boasting. From the pulpit, teachers, alleged teachers of God's word, boasting about their spiritual experiences, their encounters with God, and their communion and conversations with God. We have a guy in our town here who is now claiming to have been resurrected like Lazarus after dying ten times. That is a boast. A, you weren't resurrected. Only Christ was resurrected because he's the only one in the history of the world to receive a glorified body. That is the distinguishing mark of true resurrection. A resurrected person receives a glorified body, a body that will never die, an incorruptible body. And guess what? Jesus is the only one. It hasn't happened yet. Everyone else who was raised from the dead was resuscitated. Sir, you are not resurrected and you are not Lazarus. That is a lie. And that is personal boasting. That is boasting. It is heresy. And it is boasting. Dave, Dave, he just, he, Dave likes to get me going. Oh, David Doyle. <laughs> Repent. Dave sends me a, a video clip segment the other day of a guy who claims that God literally speaks right to him while he was getting ready to go out and speak to 6,000 leaders. And all of this took place in Stockholm, Sweden, boasting about a revelation that he received right at the moment he was about to go out and then boasting about the fact that he was preaching to all these leaders from 60 different nations and he was in Stockholm and all this. It's just boasting. You can't hardly get through a sermon these days without hearing the teacher toot his own horn several times. And in some churches in our community, all they do is toot, toot, toot. You shouldn't toot your own horn. You don't stand up here to talk about you. It's just so, so, so frustrating. It's so frustrating. Teachers stand up here and they, they boast about themselves and they do it on and on and on and on and on and on. And all such boasting is just evil. That's all there is to it. I don't care. Mic drop. Boom. Done. The teacher might also boast about things that are scripturally untrue. And this is huge today. There is so much false doctrine in churches today, it'll make your head spin. From fake tongues to lies about Jesus' deity. The other day... Uh, quote-unquote teacher Bill Johnson of Bethel and Redding. And by the way, stay away from them. Stay away from Bethel's songs. Stay away from their teachers. Stay away. Do yourself a favor. And if you want me on your back, just keep listening to it. Stay away from them. That pastor up there, I, I, I say that very loosely the pastor of that church and the leader of that entire Bethel movement claims that every believer has, he boasts about this, he boasts about how every believer has the power to heal others at any moment because Jesus set aside his deity and did all of his healing as a man. Heresy. And he also claimed, which is equally offensive to me, he also claimed that the gospel is powerless unless it is accompanied by signs and wonders. 
So much for the verse that says the gospel is the power to save. It is the power to save to those who are being saved by it. This is just blatant falsity, blatant apostasy, blatant heresy. It happens over there. It happens everywhere. And I'll tell you what, the most pervasive, widespread boast you'll hear today is prosperity. That God wants all of His children to be healthy and wealthy. I guess God hated the Apostle Paul, didn't He? He was neither healthy nor wealthy. They say the the measure of a godly man or godly woman is is therefore not in who they are in Christ or in what they possess or have in Christ, but in the size of their bank account, in the size of their estate. Every weekend there are multitudes of teachers throughout our land and throughout this world who boast about themselves and boast about doctrines and practices that are scripturally untrue, and they are using their tongues, that little two-ounce savage, to lead multitudes astray. Well, James did not want this to happen to the church he wrote to, or to us, since his letter applies to all believers and all churches. Not many of us should become teachers, and there are good reasons for this. The scariest reason is that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, I consider what's happening over there at Bethel and throughout the world, it's just injustice, scriptural injustice being perpetuated over and over and over. And I long for it to end. I want it to end. I want God to be rightly represented. I want his word rightly divided and expounded in every place and every building and every people that calls themselves a true church. I I want that. I long for that. And it frustrates me that it keeps going. But make no mistake, judgment is coming. And the judgment that God will bring upon those who boast about themselves and boast about things that are theologically inaccurate, incorrect, biblically untrue, I can't imagine what that's going to be like. I said earlier, this verse keeps me up some nights. That statement that James made there in verse 1, it, it, it haunts me at times. And yet it also motivates me to guard my tongue and do my best to rightly divide the word so that God is rightly heard and glorified. I don't do it perfectly all the time, but I I aim for that because I think my God is worth it. But may those of us who teach God's word, pulpit teachers and Bible study teachers and Sunday school teachers and nursery teachers and home teachers alike, all of us who teach the God's Word, men and women, women do teach God's Word in many capacities. They teach it to women. They teach it to children. Praise God for them. But may all of us who teach God's Word be mature and in control of our tongues so that when our time before the Bema seat of Christ comes, we shall hear our king say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. For ye built on my foundation with gold and with silver and with precious stones. Now receiveth thy reward. Amen.